Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs sat at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the Yahudi Brent. Ooh, what does that mean, Yahudi? It means something incredibly anti-Semitic, which kind of, which kind of goes along oh, yeah, yeah. with the okay. content right. of this series. Yeah, right. so I uh, thought I'd throw that in keep there. Keep that thread alive. Yes, keep it alive. <laughs> and today, we have a lot of announcements. So first of all... Since our last episode, which was about a month ago, so uh, it's been a bit hectic around here, uh, we've got three new patrons, Brendan L., Simon P., and Carson E. And I decided maybe we shouldn't throw people's last names out there. They might not want that. True. So yeah, if point. you want to hear your last name, by all means, let us know. And we will certainly tell everyone we know and we'll put it directly on. <laughs> I'll the call podcast. my mom first thing. Let her know. Oh, yeah. I'll call my mom, too. I'll let her know. I will send her a certified letter letting her know your last names. And a couple things about our remaining schedule. So part four, there's going to be four parts to this uh, series is going to be happening on July 1st. So that will uh, still be coming out then. So you won't have to wait another month <laughs> for the, uh, the conclusion of this series. Also, one thing we've talked about, but I don't think it's been a, we've officially talked about it on the main series is that we've changed the name of this series. Oh yeah. Basically we were going to start with the posse commentatus and then switch over to sovereign citizens, but there's just too much posse commentatus goodness. <laughs> so we decided best to give them a whole series. And then later on we'll tackle sovereign citizens themselves. Cause that deserves its own yeah. series. And this stuff is just too fun. And then the next thing we'll be doing is we will be having a live stream. None dare call it a live stream will be on July 3rd, or I believe Brent called it July 4th Eve. July 4th Eve. Yes. Little but known. What us normal. Fact, that's no one calls it that, but I do, I guess. No one. And no one has ever called it that. <laughs> but yes, July 3rd, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. There will be a link on the website. None dare call it ordinary dot com. When we get closer to that date and now probably the more important uh, segments of announcements is that we're going to have to take a bit of a breather specifically. We're going to be taking July off kind of completely. Once we do the live stream, we're going to put a pause on bonus episodes and regular episodes. We will be pausing pledges for July. So you won't be uh, getting charged on July 1st. Just because kind of speaking for myself, I am writing a dissertation right now yeah. and it's getting down to the wire. I have to submit my prospectus in August hmm. and then I'm going to be defending it at the end of this year. And I just need some extra time yeah, definitely. to finish that up. You know, I just, I got to get that finished. I just need a vacation uh, so, from 2020 in general, to be honest with you. So. Yeah. Brent's just lazy. <laughs> I'm uh, that's just, just lazy. Kinda, you know, yeah. No. Yeah, I, you know, really... I have a legitimate uh, reason, uh, but Brent does not. That's <laughs> definitely true. That's, that's not true at all. Yeah, so that's why we're taking July off so I can just kind of work fully on my dissertation. And then when we come back in August, our main series is switching to once every two weeks instead of weekly. Yeah. Again, just what Brent and I need to do at the very least till the end yeah. of 2020. We have full-time jobs. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, just yeah. it's cause it's, it's hectic right now. 
and I need to at least get my dissertation finished. Hopefully, when 2021 comes around, we can figure out maybe going back to a weekly schedule. But for right now, at least until the end of 2020, it's going to be once every two weeks for the main series. But we're still going to do once a week bonus episodes. So if you're a patron, you're still getting some kind of weekly content. Just the main series itself will be once every two weeks. That's kind of what we're working on right now. And the other thing that I got to talk about because it's coming faster than anyone wants it to come, but a little thing called election day (laughs) is coming in a few months, which seems wholly unbelievable that we're almost to election day. But November 3rd, Tuesday, as in case you didn't know, uh, we vote on Tuesdays here in the good old U.S. of A. And just as we did in 2018, we are going to be doing a gnashing of teeth election 2020 live stream yet again. Uh, Even though our teeth were almost gnashed out on the uh, midterms, they are just nubs at this point. We're basically just be gnashing gums, I think. Yeah, gnashing of gums at this point. And then depending (laughs) on how things shake out, maybe like just gnashing of... I don't know, whatever skulls like gnashing. Right. It kind of Whatever's you start left. with the bone, go to gum, and then you go to skull again. It's kind of a it's like an inception kind of thing. But we'll have more details about that. Basically, it's a way to kind of hang out with other folks online while you're biting your fingernails watching yeah. this fucking d- disaster of an election that's going to be happening. Yeah. So either we'll rejoice together or suffer together. Honestly, either way, we're going to suffer together, but better to suffer together. Exactly. Is the basic idea for that. So, yes, that'll be, you know, November 3rd, uh, gnashing of teeth, election 2020, and we'll have more details closer to that date. All right. So what is it we're talking about today, Dylan? Well, we are (laughs) finally getting to Posse Commentatus Part 3, and this episode is kind of a turning point episode for us. So we started with Bill Gale and kind of his prehistory. And then we, in the second episode, we talked about the development of the, uh, the Christian Posse Association by Gale and clerk by Mike beach. And today we're going to be looking at some ways folks took that into action and the kind of violent turning point that the Posse movement took and kind of it kind of split the movement and launched it to a darker than it even was trajectory. <laughs> and so really that's what this episode is all about. Yeah, it gets darker, uh, which doesn't seem possible, but it does. So as you'll recall from part 2, Thomas Stockheimer was the proud patriot who harangued one Fred Chicken about how the income tax was unconstitutional and marxist. But harassing federal agents was not his most important accomplishment. He was also the primary reason the Posse Comitatus began to shift focus to rural communities, particularly farmers. This was initially kind of a city thing. It was a city thing. I mean, you know, Bill Gale, he was in, you know, Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, Mike Beach was in Portland. So now, you know, we're getting into the rural areas. We're getting to the farmers and connecting to issues that matter to them. So besides the normal posse comitatus gobbledygook, Stockheimer also focused on land use regulations and farm foreclosures and the great Satan himself, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, 
or DNR. I don't think that doesn't actually stand for Department of Natural Resources, but I think it stands for Demonic Nefarious Rothschilds. If I'm oh, not, oh, um, that if I'm makes at the wrong. That's notes. beginning yeah. to make a lot more sense. So, what was Stockheimer's beef with the DNR? Well, according to him, their quote efforts to enforce environmental laws ran counter to the idea of unfettered private property rights that so many rural residents embraced. So, yeah, I mean. When it comes to farming, they never get any assistance from the government. I mean, that absolutely does not happen. So they're like, what? There's going to be the government is going to get involved in farming. They were real pissed. They've never seen that before in any form whatsoever. But before Stockheimer could tackle the DNR, he first had to get his posse credentials in order. He did this by chartering the Marathon County Posse Commentatus with Mike Beach's clerk. Following Beach's recommendation for a conspicuous self-promotion, the Marathon County Posse issued the following press release. Our purpose is to maintain our duly elected county sheriff as the ultimate law enforcement official of this county. Officers of the federal government, unconstitutional acts of the Congress and of the legislature notwithstanding. Now, hearing that, you might think that Marathon County Sheriff, uh, one uh, Louis uh, Giannoli, would be proud to be recognized as the only legitimate authority in the county. I mean, that's yeah. pretty, that's a promotion. That's pretty good. Right there. Yeah, that's pretty good. However, you would be mistaken, oh. as he had this to say about the matter. Those SOBs aren't going to come in here to do my job, and the first one of those guys who steps out of line will get his butt in jail. <laughs> Damn. I'm glad. I'm glad he said butt. I'm just glad he didn't say the A word. And he said SOB shortened it, so that's good. Yeah, thank God. I, I, I don't need to deal with that. Besides Stockheimer, one of Marathon County Posse's prominent members was potato farmer Raymond J. Omernick. Omernick ran for the Wisconsin State Legislature in 1974, the year of our chicken, uh, as we call it, the uh, Fred Chicken Assault. <laughs> Under the auspices of the American Party, one of the third parties we don't hear too much more about. Uh, so who is the American Party. Well, Levitas summarizes it thusly. The American Party platform echoed the core themes of the radical right, declared busing a needless safety hazard, and said it was unalterably committed to preserving local schools without interference, i.e. black people. Its stand on the Second Amendment was also predictable. Registering guns makes as much sense as the slogan register matches prevent forest fires. Federal funding for law enforcement was tantamount to supporting the secret terrorist arm of dictatorial government, and regional government was an Illuminati-sponsored plot for world domination. Equal wages for women performing equal work was acceptable, oh. but not, quote, the militant feminists who would destroy the role of our wives and mothers as the anchoring and vital force in our family units. Naturally, the party opposed abortion and family planning. All right, so equal wages for some women. Wow, what what progressives actually in the sovereign citizen movement? It's uh, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean this is this these are the moderates. Okay. I mean, let's be honest; these yeah. are the moderates. I mean, definitely equal wages for no women. Yeah. should really be the platform. So it's kind of they're kind of selling out to get some votes. You know, predictable, but you take what you can get. Yeah. So this is the platform of the party that Omernick uh, ran uh, when he ran for state rep of Wisconsin. And he lost in 1974, but he ran again as a Republican in 1978. Mm. And this time he won. This wow, man great. was, in fact, a state representative Jeez. of Wisconsin. And in 1978, though, he was no longer associated with the posse commentators, but ultimately, quote, 
he saw nothing wrong with building bunkers, buying weapons, and practicing paramilitary maneuvers. <laughs> nothing wrong with that at <laughs> all. Yeah, I mean, if the regional government's uh, Illuminati-sponsored plot for world domination, I think uh, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, that, you yeah. know, definitely there's nothing wrong with fighting against the Illuminati. I mean, right. if the Illuminati is real. I mean, I definitely think I agree with him there. Now, Omernick aside, really, the Marathon County Posse would get its first taste of flexing its common law muscle by trying to help out one Gerald L. McFerrin, who was another American Party candidate, though he set his sights a little higher by running for U.S. Senate. So oh. he wasn't playing around. Yeah. He also didn't win, but, you know, hey, you got to have goals. Yeah. McFerrin also had a dispute with the DNR, the uh, demonic something or other Rothschilds, I believe we learned the real nefarious. I'm, I'm sorry. All he was doing was illegally dumping landfill into a lake. <laughs> What's the big deal? I mean, yeah. What else is he supposed to do with this landfill? Bury it? I mean, come yeah, on. You, you can't do that. You dig you a hole. Water. You put the landfill in it. Guess what? You have more landfill. I mean, it's just <laughs> that you can't. Well, he's supposed to shoot it into space. Space is an Illuminati invention. Exactly. So Stockheimer's response to the continual harassment of McFerrin by the Department for Negating Rights, mm. which is actually another way um, <laughs> to spell out that acronym, was to himself subpoena the DNR. So this is now Stockheimer and the Marathon County Posse Comitatus mm. are subpoenaing the DNR. And these subpoenas charge them with, quote, abuses, harassments, usurpations, mm. and violations of the constitutional rights of McFerrin. Because state officials would obviously comply with these totally legitimate <laughs> subpoenas, where exactly would they go to testify? Yeah. In front of a, quote, Christian citizens grand jury, of course, of course. have we learned nothing yeah, that's true. about the posse. This and it, it, guess what? This Christian citizens grand jury was, in fact, held on September 12th, 1974 at the University of Wisconsin Experimental Farm in Spooner, Wisconsin, which <laughs> seems what? to me the perfect place for this kind of activity. And it was about as successful as you could as, imagine. I, sorry, yeah, to interrupt. What is what's an experiment experimental farm? Is that where the animals attend to the people in their pens? It's just everything's all. So wacky. I think it's basically it's a place to have a farm where you're not totally beholden to actually having to grow anything. Mm. So you can kind of you can go like, okay, so we know you can grow potatoes, right? Yeah. Corn. Can you grow pianos? Right. Can you grow? tissues right can you grow a ipad i i think that's kind of okay they try to grow kind of grow things you know experimental yeah okay stuff i gotcha it's kind of my that's my guess yeah um i mean that's definitely what it is oh yeah um of course so i'm just gonna let levitas himself explain how this all went none of the subpoenaed officials showed up but a pair of agents from the State Division of Criminal Investigation huddled on one side of a flimsy room partition, listening to posse men periodically shout the names of witnesses down the hallway in a lame attempt to imitate a legitimate proceeding. The self-styled inquiry had run a day and a half, and the group had compiled a Christian Citizens Grand Jury indictment targeting more than 50 state and local officials they accused of trampling their rights. All right. Well, I got to say, I mean, if you're going to hold a fake trial, you really should invest in firm room partition material. I mean, none oh, of this yeah. flimsy ass shit. This is not kindergarten. Come on. This is. Yeah, uh, and you're at the experimental farm. Just grow, grow some firm room partition material. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's. Make sure it's firm. It's right there. It's really, I <laughs> definitely a missed opportunity on their part. 
And just as the Marathon County Posse tried to look legit by filing their charter at the county courthouse, they also went to the county courthouse to file this indictment. Sadly, the judge there refused. And so the Marathon County Posse, they indicted him too. You know, these people ignoring these subpoenas are kind of ahead of their time. Like soon during the Trump years, we'll learn that you can ignore real subpoenas too. Mm, mm. If only it was uh, just a fake rule of law falling apart instead of uh, the actual one. But, yeah, it's oh. funny because I think now, you know, in a few years, the next step is that people are going to ignore real subpoenas, but follow the fake ones. Oh, so that's true. really yeah, going to flip flop where the posse. Confusion. Yeah, they're going to come back in a big way. Yeah. Think, oh, yeah. Because uh, everything's all topsy turvy because uh, norms don't exist anymore. So all of this McFerrin stuff came to a head on September 20th, 1974 at a scheduled hearing about McFerrin dumping landfill into a lake. Again, that's what this is all about. (laughs) Since the Department for Negating Rights or the demonic nefarious Rothschilds got a bomb threat (laughs) the last time they held a meeting about McFerrin, 20 police officers were stationed nearby with riot gear and gas masks at the ready, and the state police checked the building thoroughly for bombs. The Marathon County Posse arrived at 8 a.m. with signs supporting both McFerrin and the American Party. Stockheimer not only had a posse badge, but a sweet blue plaid suit jacket for the occasion. That's good. It was the 70s. So, you know, it doesn't (laughs) that's going to infiltrate everything, even the posse commentators. As you can imagine, the cops were a little bit nervous about these folks hanging around, given their propensity for bomb threats and all. So while the hearing room had a maximum capacity of 50, the police barred any more people entering once 35 McFerrinites took their places. And this did not go so well. McFerrin himself made it very clear why he wanted that hearing room packed, saying this, quote, I want all my friends with me when these commies try to hang me. To make this happen, to make sure all his friends were there when the commies tried to hang him, McFerrin managed to force open one of the doors to the building open, allowing some of these posse men, including Stockheimer, to shove themselves inside. Despite making it inside the building, Stockheimer decided to up the ante in the situation. You have no authority in this building, Stockheimer told the guards, and pulled a canister of pepper spray from his pocket and discharged it at one of the officers, temporarily blinding him. Wow. So, wonderful. And again, like, you know, sometimes, you know, I try to express these ideas in my own words, but sometimes there's there's really no other way to say it. So I'm just going to let Levitas explain what happened next. Chaos and confusion followed. One guard was thrown back. Another was dragged into the crowd. Stockheimer sprayed this guard, too, holding the canister about five inches from his face. When more officers attempted to come to his rescue, someone in the crowd tore at one of the officers ammunition pouches, spilling bullets to the ground. In an effort to drive Stockheimer and others out of the doorway, the guards themselves began to use mace, and acrid mist wafted into the building. The melee lasted ten minutes. After the guards removed the last of the protesters from the entrance, they quickly chained and padlocked the doors. A plainclothes detective tried to relieve Stockheimer of his pepper spray, but thought better of it when the crowd surrounded him. At six o'clock that evening, the district attorney obtained felony warrant for Stockheimer's arrest charging him with battery, obstructing a police officer, and possession of tear gas. God damn. So these are right-wing people getting violent out of protests. Okay, so this wasn't Antifa. Okay. Well, it's funny. I think you're going to bring that up later. I am. Maybe this is Antifa. We're going to find that out. Maybe 
you know, I thought Antifa meant something like I thought it designated a certain group, but maybe it it means absolutely nothing. We're going to find that out later, <laughs> though, in the episode. So three months after this whole fiasco on December 13th, 1974, Thomas Stockheimer was convicted of assaulting Fred chicken. We're still working on the red chicken thing, actually. So <laughs> he was just uh, trying to make finally, chicken tenders. You know, OK, by assaulting him. So, uh, oh, boy. Yeah, he definitely it. made chicken tender in a few uh, places, um, you know, his, his wings there. While the jury was deliberating over this verdict, Stockheimer had the opportunity to talk to reporters to make sure he looked real good in the media. Quote, Stockheimer told one reporter that the posse was, quote, the only non-integrated fighting unit left that was prepared to handle the race war and looting that would surely accompany the upcoming economic collapse. So great look for the posse commentators. So what sentence did Stockheimer get for kidnapping and assaulting a federal agent? Seems like a pretty severe crime. Uh, He got 60 days in prison. You know, we leave it as an exercise for the listener if that is an appropriate sentence. The judge thought the sentence was totally fair because Stockheimer had no criminal history leading up to the assault and did nothing illegal afterward. And in case you forgot, Stockheimer attacked several police officers with mace after assaulting Fred Chicken. So I guess the judge didn't think that was illegal. Uh, But yeah, if you if you ignore assaulting officers of the law, he did nothing illegal afterwards. And for his part, Stockheimer had a very compelling argument as to why he didn't think he was guilty of assault, saying this. If assault had been my goal, Mr. Chicken wouldn't be around to testify, let alone file a report. So what? What murder then? He would have murdered Mr. Chicken. I mean, if he, I don't know if he had Hollywood could remake the old Don Knotts film that we all know that are listening called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, you know, oh, uh, no one knows. Or that maybe movie. he not one. So I don't know if it's murder. Maybe he just means that when he assaults people, he does it by like sewing people's mouths shut. Oh, like that's okay. his particular method. <laughs> or he like ships them to Argentina. So yeah, he wouldn't be around to testify because he's like in a different country. You know, he's got a weird assaulter. Yeah. But even though the sentence is ludicrously light, perhaps it still had a positive effect. You know, sometimes, you know, little things like that can actually help turn people's lives around. You know, I I wouldn't want to spend 60 days in jail. So if I had to go and I think I think it could have a positive effect on me. Uh, Well, it didn't uh, for Stockheimer. Uh, So he appealed the decision and lost in May 1976. And instead of just spending the 60 days in prison, Stockheimer opted to become a federal fugitive instead, remaining on the lam until he was arrested in West Virginia in 1977. These shenanigans added only one more year to his sentence. It must be like a one for one deal, you know, fugitive for one year. You get one year in prison when you're caught. That's it. (laughs) That seems that seems right. (laughs) And. You, you might be surprised by this, but Stockheimer's reign of terror did not end in the 70s. Mm-hmm. He and eight pals were arrested for mail fraud and conspiracy for selling posse commentators money orders well into the 90s. Wow. So he really he took this all the way. And one of his customers was Oklahoma City bomber Terry Nichols. Oh, come on now. Let's re- remember Alex Jones taught us that it was Bill Clinton. Who took down that building in a controlled demolition. I you're, think. you're absolutely right. I apologize. Uh, one of his customers, Oklahoma City Patsy Terry <laughs> Nichols. There we go. <laughs> Better. Corrected the record. Now, while the chicken affair, as I like to call that <laughs> whole scenario with Stockheimer, is both disturbing and hilariously enough, <laughs> it lacked two key ingredients to 
really put the posse comitatus on the map. Gunfire and, of course, tomatoes. God, geez. Yeah, I didn't expect this, but um, this episode's kind of making me hungry. Chicken, potatoes, tomatoes, bullets, whatever. Oh, yeah. Just, give, me, um, give me them tomato yum. bullets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the incident in question that we're going to talk about next occurred on September 2nd, 1975 at a tomato farm in Tracy, California. The owner of the farm, Frank Ray, called on the San Joaquin County Posse Comentatus to deal with some troublemakers. The leader of this posse was Francis Earl Gillings, who was not only the, quote, marshal of the San Joaquin County Posse Comentatus and a Korean War veteran, but also a, quote, unemployed service station operator. <laughs> he also had a colorful way of expressing the importance of the Second Amendment, saying this. There is no greater law firm than Smith and Wesson, especially if it is backed up by a 12 gauge injunction. Oh, shit. I actually prefer the law firm of bow and arrow. I mean, they're old school, but they were, you know, they're a bunch of straight shooters, if you will. Okay. Yeah, the, I believe a Ted Nugent Esquire is the <laughs> uh, runs the law firm of bow and arrow. But who exactly were these uh, ne'er-do-wells that convinced Frank Ray to put his faith in a bunch of armed maniacs wearing fake sheriff badges? None other than those infamous enemies of liberty, Mm. the United Farm Workers Union, (laughs) whom Gitlings preferred to call, quote, Brown Berade fascists. Wow. So why is Gitlings being so Antifa here? I'm glad you brought that up because, again, this kind of, you know, they are Antifa. This is clearly what Antifa is all about. They are fighting fascists, clearly. You know, Eamon Bundy, Ryan Bundy, they're all Antifa. I mean, I think we just need to be clear and, you know, rebrand them. I think, oh, skinny uh hip kids in portland wearing all black no antifa encompasses a lot of folks people we need a big tent antifa that's right that's what i'm exactly the trouble for frank ray was that california labor officials required farm owners to allow union organizing on their property which disgusted gillings and the rest of the posse saying this you wouldn't want these people in your living room and this tomato field is this man's living room he said We're armed and we mean business, added the local posse chairman, Jim McDaniel, a Stockton electrician. If they take away trespassing laws, we are in trouble in this country. You know, the tomato field living room is a little elitist for me Mm. personally. I prefer the potato field living room of uh, I like that. I feel this is back when tomatoes were not as elitist. I feel they've gotten more elitist. They were a little bit more. Uh, proletarian a little bit more working class the heirloom oh please yeah Yeah. give me a break the heirloom oh yeah that's organic gross this is when they were fucking spraying them directly in the face with just pesticide (laughs) made of arsenic and asbestos that's how you know it's it's working class (laughs) working so the you um the united farm worker organizers tried multiple times to enter frank ray's property but they were rebuffed by the posse there were sheriff's mm. deputies present who could have maybe enforced the law, but they just, they weren't ready yet. They, they were on a break. They, they didn't have time to enforce the law right there and then. And not wanting to get shot by these fake sheriffs mm. while not getting protection from the real sheriffs, the UFW organizers, they just drove away. They're like, you know, you got to pick your battles. We're not going to pick this one right now. It doesn't look too good for us. Satisfied with a job well done. Gillings told the posse to take five, you know, take a break from fighting for the liberty of farm owners to not have to deal with unions. While most of the posse left the premises to do just that, a few did stay behind, including Gillings's 14-year-old son, Stephen, 
Instead of attending his first day of freshman year, he was participating in a kind of take-your-son-to-work day, except this work involved being armed with a semi-automatic rifle and a white military helmet. <gasps> oh, God. Did you say white helmet? Oh, Again. shit. We've upset Roger Waters again. Oh, this God. I good. didn't even think of that. It's... ah. <laughs> Yeah, let's... <laughs> What's well, a white military helmet? Yeah, we'll have to throw in a trigger warning just for Roger Waters' <laughs> feed for this episode. Because uh, I know, big fan uh, of us, Roger Waters is. I am not a fan of his at all, but he's definitely a big fan of us. <laughs> With most of Gillings's fake deputies out of the way, the real sheriffs finally decided to take action, approaching the remaining posse members with full riot gear on. While the sheriff's deputies did have a warrant for Gillings' arrest, it actually had nothing to do with the whole violating the order to allow union organizers onto private property, but rather was for a seven-month-old traffic warrant for <laughs> Gillings's arrest. Because I guess traffic law is just more important than labor law. It's kind of like how some police departments, they they make nonviolent drug crimes a low priority. They yeah. just decided to make, you know, labor rights. We're just going to make that a low priority, but traffic <laughs> laws definitely oh, yeah. take very seriously. But Gillings was not intending to abide by the only legitimate law enforcement officers in the county, according to him. And instead, he racked his 12-gauge shotgun and asked his posse for backup. As the officers approached, Gillings had to let them know he meant business, saying, quote, If you don't stop, I'll have to shoot. Jesus. Gillings got some assistance from one Norman Brown, the chairman of the Shasta County Posse, who snuck behind the deputies and ordered them to drop their guns or, quote, you're dead. But it was Gillings rather than Brown who fired first that day. And there is disagreement as to whether Gillings fired just at close range or if the gun went off as Sheriff's Inspector Daniel DeFati grabbed it from him. But either way, no one was seriously hurt. DeFati successfully took the gun away from Gillings and wrestled him to the ground while another officer put his knee on Gillings's neck. The incident, however, almost turned to tragedy. When Gillings' son Stephen rushed to his father's aid, a deputy yelled stop, and Stephen aimed his rifle at the Jesus. deputy, who himself pulled out his revolver and aimed it directly at the 14-year-old boy. Thankfully, Stephen lowered his rifle and was not shot that day. But as another deputy approached Stephen, he uh, punched that deputy in the mouth, <laughs> kicked him in the dick, and tried reaching for his own pistol <laughs> But thankfully, again, the other deputies were able to overpower Stephen and no one had to die that morning. Jesus Christ. It sounds like a like a scene from an old 70s Disney movie, like Apple Dumpling Gang. Yeah. So again, with the uh, Don Knotts referencing. Sorry. <laughs> but it's just it's like goofy as shit. Yeah, it is. It's it would be a lot more goofy if everyone wasn't armed. Like right. if this was just a Benny Hill skit, right. it would yeah, be much be more hilarious. Enjoyable. Jeez. And as goofy as all this sounds, kind of alluding to something we talked about at the top of this episode, Levitas treats this as a kind of is an important turning point for the posse commentators saying this. Like the assault on Fred Chicken in Wisconsin, the September 1975 tomato field incident, as it came to be known, was a watershed for the posse commentators. Tough talk and belligerent threats were standard posse fare, but the gunplay at Stockton signaled a new militancy within the movement. Gilling's weapon was the first to go off, and it would not be the last. Mm -hmm. This incident effectively split the Posse Comitatus in two. Those who didn't want shit like this to happen, and those who <laughs> definitely did. Those who didn't, which includes Mike Beach himself, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode, left the movement 
leaving only those who did in charge. This split was aided by a bifurcated media. Quote, Negative publicity discouraged some posse activists, but it strengthened the resolve of many others who look forward to future confrontations. After all, the same actions that prompted criticism in the mainstream media earned lavish praise in the right-wing media. But before talking about this kind of overarching account of all this history, let's go back in time and look more closely at the life of one Francis Earl Gillings. As Levitas sums him up, quote, Gillings had the perfect pedigree for a posse leader. He dabbled in politics as a candidate for Congress on the American Party ticket. He embraced tax protest, loved guns, hated busing, and was drawn to the notoriety of it all. And like so many others in his place, he used the posse to both resolve his personal problems and to promote ultra-conservative activism. Gillings' start on the road to liberty took place in a Tracy, California gas station when he refused to collect sales tax during 1972 and 73 which earned him the label Tracy Tax Rebel. He apparently suffered no ill consequences for violating the law and decided to run for sheriff in 1974. During his campaign, he praised capitalism and the Constitution, but the most important promise in his platform was to arrest one or two federal agents and two or three bankers and put them before a grand jury. Gillings came in third during the primary, but still got 5,540 <laughs> votes. So, hey, that's not too bad. But Gillings' crusade for truth, justice, and the American way would not be thwarted by something as trivial as the will of the people. Good. Instead, he changed tactics and filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the Stanislaw County Board of Supervisors. <laughs> the reason for the suit was the flying of the UN flag over the Stanislaw County Library in Modesto, California. Holy shit. Well, he, you know, he should just be grateful it was only a UN flag and not a fucking UN plaque. Jesus oh Christ. Oh my God, I totally way forgot worse. about the UN <laughs> plaques. You know, I can imagine 20 years later, if this man lived, he saw that Alex Jones documentary and he oh fucking lost his mind. It probably yeah. would have killed him if he had seen that. So what exactly, so it's just a flag. So what exactly is his reasoning? Like, what kind, of, how, what kind of lawsuit is this? Well, this is what he said. Because the UN was, quote, dominated by anti-Christian, anti-American, and pro-communist nations intent on promoting one world government, Gillings argued that paying taxes to support that, quote, anti-God, anti-freedom UN flag amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. Sadly, though, this kind of backfired on him because mm. the judge in this case sued Gillings ah. since forcing a judge to read this lawsuit was itself cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of backfired on him. And just as his gas station served as his entry into radical right wing politics, mm. Atlantic Richfield Company terminating the lease on his gas station is what caused him to start the San Joaquin County Posse in 1975. With his posse in tow, quote, Gillings threatened that its members would come to his aid. The posse men would be armed with badges, billy clubs, and sawed-off shotguns, Gillings warned. But the men never materialized, and the eviction concluded without a confrontation. So, uh, <laughs> didn't exactly work the way he uh, threatened there. Of course, Gillings didn't just plan on using a group of thugs to enforce his interests in purely <laughs> private matters. He was also very interested in enforcing traffic laws. Of course. Gillings also bragged that he made citizens arrests of drunk drivers on the freeway, but uh, there is no evidence such incidents ever took place. 
Now, that's kind of how that's how the San Joaquin Posse started. But to understand why the posse took off the way it did in California at this time, we need to dive into the truly hysterical hatred of the group the posse were fighting against in the tomato field incident, the United Farm Workers Union led by Cesar Chavez. When farm owners refused to recognize the union, the United Farm Workers would organize boycotts of their produce, including lettuce, grapes, and wine. Tomatoes were next on the chopping block. God, man, I bet grape tomatoes are even more at risk. Ooh, I don't even want to, especially grape tomato wine. Ugh. Oh my God, disgusting. <laughs> that's my, ooh, that's my favorite kind of wine because it doesn't exist. Plus, on top of all that, many farmhands were Mexican or Mexican-American. And believe it or not, that was relevant to the posse's dislike of the mm, UFW. Weird. I know that's hard to it's imagine yeah. that ethnic hatred would be involved here, but it yeah. was. Um, one reason the San Joaquin County Posse was so vital, according to Gillings, was because local law enforcement allowed, quote, alien Mexican communist back farm organizers the right to trespass on private property. And Gillings was also adept at translating the violation of the laws of trespass into issues that everyone could understand, even if you didn't own a farm where property rights are concerned. Is there any difference between a farmer's tomato field and his or your bedroom? Well, I always sleep surrounded by tomato plants. So no. Yeah, definitely. There's absolutely no, no difference. difference for you. You might as well just live outside. Yeah. Bugs crawl all over me at night. It's normal. All right. So that's kind of some of the background. So let's kind of go forward in time, kind of after the tomato field incident. Gillings and George Hill, who was another posse supporter who was arrested during that incident, went on the offensive after the arrest. Only two weeks later, they gathered 60 posse men together to induct two new members. And it was all filmed for some reason by NBC News. What the fuck? And I really wish I could find video of this because oh, man, Hill, be George Hill, he used his revolver as a gavel. God damn. You know, hopefully that wasn't loaded. We may have a judge, jury, and executioner situation on our hands. If so, <laughs> Jesus, that would have been horrible. But thankfully, though, because <laughs> he used TV. the butt. Thankfully, he used the butt of the revolver oh, yeah. as like the shot himself, as like what he slammed down. So yeah, it would have been just like a just a self execution. Really. I'm not saying that's good, <laughs> no. but you know, all things considered, uh, not the worst thing that could possibly happen. George Hill, after you know, obviously knowing how being a judge works, <laughs> he was given the opportunity to testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding gun control, which I can barely comprehend. Um, and he said this totally normal thing uh, while he was testifying. I'm not advocating that we shoot every politician who disagrees with us. <laughs> but there are certain rights I cannot give away, nor can they be taken away. And there comes a time when force of arms is necessary. Why can't we just give these people a micronation and let them larf in a safe setting and leave the rest of us in an actual country alone? Yeah, please. It would be a Truman you know, show. We, them we talk about, Ugh. you know, they were at an experimental farm. Let's just convert the experimental farm into an experimental county. And let's right. see if this whole posse commentators thing works there. Maybe yeah. it does. I don't know. Yeah. Gillings, for his part. He didn't have time to testify, given his indictment by a federal grand jury for tax evasion in 1971 and 72, because for some reason, his constant support for not paying taxes tipped off the IRS to the fact that maybe he didn't pay taxes. Somehow what? they made the connection there. <laughs> 
To raise money for the potential $20,000 fine he faced, he took out an ad in Tax Strike News in February 1976 and listed all the terrible garbage facing this great country. Fantastic sums of money stolen from our paychecks by an income tax illegally foisted on the American people. The great increase of crime. Fast decaying morals, drug use, pornography, and permissiveness. Socialist teaching in our schools. Bussing. The many needless and unreasonable controls placed on business by such acts as the Occupational Safety and Health and Environmental Protection Act. I know oh Brent agrees with that. Yeah, I definitely The far-reaching and determined drive by leftist groups to register and outlaw guns. <laughs> Our sellout to the communists worldwide and uh, the doctoring of news. That's the last <laughs> one I'm going to put on that list. And George Hill himself added his two cents to mm-hmm. this ad, pointing to, quote, rapidly escalating inflation, which is cutting our purchasing power and making it difficult to support our families and steadily increasing unemployment, leading to more welfare, hardship and worry. The posse is well posted on who has caused these problems and why these conditions exist. They have been planned, promoted, financed, aided, and abetted at every turn by a ruthless group of international bankers and industrialists striving for world domination and plotting the eventual takeover of the U.S. Levitas himself notes how such rhetoric was partially based in reality and served to normalize the posse commentators. Quote, Apprehension about declining living standards was not why Francis Gillings and George Hill joined the posse but a shrinking economic pie did lend credence to the right-wing claims of middle American radicals who believed that the prosperity of the productive middle classes was being drained by elites from above and parasites from below. Mm, A victim sandwich. Victim sandwich. It's a terrible place to be. You don't want to be the meat in a victim sandwich. That's right. That's exactly right. That's what we call bread privilege. (laughs) Now, to conclude this episode, we're going to go back to someone who we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Mike Beach, because mm. as mentioned Mike is earlier, the right? tomato. F- uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, sure. Yeah. It's it's because it's like it's Henry Lamont Mike uh, Beach. He didn't want to go by Henry or Lamont. Right. Uh, so, yeah, definitely uh, just Mike Beach. I would have went with Sandy. <laughs> Sandy Beach. Yeah, it's nicer. As mentioned earlier, the tomato field incident effectively split the posse commentators, driving away those not interested in their LARP becoming so violent. This includes posse popularizer Mike, in quotation marks, Beach himself. (laughs) At the end of 1975, miffed about Gillings, Beach launched a bulletin criticizing these, quote, stupid actions and fighting with the sheriff because no sheriff can be expected to become associated with a pack of hoodlums. Mm. Posse leaders are making statements to the news media, throwing a bad light on the posses and pursuing the misconstrued idea that the posse can take over the law, leaving us wide open to the stigma of being called vigilantes. Instead, Beach said posse should be more focused on, quote, fighting the battle in courtrooms, keeping their membership secret and avoiding unnecessary publicity like wearing guns and improper use of the badge. Hopefully he doesn't mean fake courts here, though. So, yeah, I yeah, I, I think. Well, so. I think he does mean fake courts, mm. but we would call them real courts. Real okay. courts. He thinks they should stop worrying so much about about the fake courts, according to us, mm-hmm. and focus more on the real courts, which they think are fake. fake. Right. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Beach even claimed that protesting taxes, which seems like a vital component to all this, he yeah. called it childish. Wow. And that, quote, there are thousands of posse members who do pay taxes. <laughs> well, I guess it's okay. 
But perhaps the best criticism, Mike, I was in the pro Hitler silver shirts beach had <laughs> of the more radical elements of the posse commentators was their public racism and anti-Semitism. Mm. As Levitas notes, quote, calling race and religion the two most controversial issues, Beach said they should never be discussed in public. Either issue will destroy your effectiveness and inhibit your growth and weaken the posse movement. Instead of getting on a race kick, the posse should be fighting land use, zoning, regionalism, home rule, and unelected officialdom. Home rule. Is that like ruling over your family like a tyrant? Um, no, I think oh. that's actually when you're playing Monopoly and you kind of adopt your own rules like in your household. I think that's home rule. Oh, God. Each okay. tried to refocus the posse commentators by forming the citizens posse commentators, dropping mm. the sheriff part to avoid pissing off. Well, sheriff splitter. But the posse commentators had no interest in moderating themselves at this point, And Mike Beach's involvement quickly withered to nothing. Hmm. Nearly a decade later, reflecting back on his involvement with the posse, he said they were idiots and halfwits. The posse had been turned into a radical group and was destroyed by members who joined so they could shout and holler and do their dirty work. Well, at least it wasn't hoot and a holler. That's obviously worse. Uh, yeah, hoot and a holler. God, I, I can't even think about that. And uh, it, I, it turns out that uh, Mike Beach's favorite song at karaoke is... Uh, I don't want to do your dirty work <laughs> no more. No, 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 no. Uh, anyway, and so we'll end this episode with Levitas's take on Mike Beach and the movement that got away from him. Although Beach played an important role in popularizing the posse commentators, it is surprising he didn't withdraw from the movement sooner. Apart from his time as a silver shirt and the brief spark of resistance he displayed when he challenged the army during World War II, he was basically. A coward. <laughs> and despite Beach's efforts to redirect the posse toward tamer tasks, Bill Gale's more violent ideology dominated the movement and defined the public's perception of it. Beach persisted in putting himself forth as the national chairman, but the real leadership came from grassroots activists like Stockheimer, Gillings, and others who are not afraid to go to jail for their beliefs. And it's those brave men that we'll talk about in the conclusion Ooh. to our Posse Commentator series. But for now, we, we are, are yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of None Dare Call It Ordinary. If you would also like to hear our weekly bonus episodes, just become a $5 a month patron over at patreon.com slash ordinary. That is also where you'll find any blog posts, pictures, and news updates to go along with our regular series. And you don't even have to be a patron to get access to all that fun stuff. You can also reach us by email at ordinary at gmail.com. Lastly, we ask for you to please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served.